You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. I'd ask you to follow in your Bible as I read our text today from Matthew chapter 25. It is not so long ago that I went through the entire Gospel of Matthew with you in a long series. It was more than a year, and it was about a year and a half ago that we came to this part, and I did preach on this passage, but with a different thrust and perhaps somewhat different applications than we bring to it today. If you've not been with us, we've been looking at a topical series that attempts to work with a biblical question, what happens after death? And that's not a simple question. There are a lot of answers to it, a lot of things to be explored. We've already looked at death itself, what it is, how it originated, how Christ addressed it in His cross and resurrection, how the believer can expect to be with the Lord immediately at death, how the second coming of Christ brings the completion of what we would call heaven, not just the immediacy of Christ's presence, but the final presence of being with Him in a resurrection body. But then last week, I said we needed to begin to look at the other side. Some could call it the dark side, if you want, of this reality, that there is actually sudden destruction for those who are not in Christ. And today, I would look at the words of Jesus Himself about the judgment that He will bring that he predicted here during his earthly ministry in what's called the Olivet Sermon, the Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew. He predicted how he would come as judge. Listen as I read Matthew 25, starting at 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whoever did it for one of these brothers of mine, the least of them, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. 
I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth that whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is God's Word in a very solemn passage. Let us ask Him to help us understand it today. Father, we pray that those things that are not as easy going down and easy to approach might be nonetheless considered by us as Your Word. Open our minds. Help us to understand the message you have here, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You certainly know that at more than one point, Christianity is offensive to people who do not call Christ their Lord. An often cited affront to these folks is the Bible's so-called narrow-minded assertion that salvation is found no other way than in the exclusive message of Jesus Christ as the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man. They hate that. You Christians are so exclusive and intolerant. How can that be? Well, we say because our Lord Himself declared it. But a second hated offense to unbelievers is when they hear us say God would dare to judge anyone or to consign anyone to eternal condemnation while others would enter the bliss of heaven. That is a great offense in our world today. And yet when we affirm the Apostles' Creed, each week we say that Christ will return, the resurrected Christ will return again to history to, quote, judge the quick and the dead. I trust you know that quick is just another word for living. It doesn't mean those who can run fast enough to get out of the way. He will come to judge the living and the dead. People say there are only two certain things in this world, and that is death and taxes. Well, there's a certainty just beyond this world that has to be added. A third absolute certainty is God's divine judgment. It awaits us after the return of Christ, and no one is exempted from it, according to the Scripture. No one is quick enough or can run fast enough to get out of its way. Scripture says final judgment follows the return of Christ as the culminating event of history, the, literally the disposing of and the wrapping up of all the business of earth so that eternity can then proceed. Last time, I believe, I mentioned the verse in James 5 that says, the judge of all things stands at the door. The Scripture wants us to have a sense of the immediacy of this judgment. It could be at any time. The judge waits at the door for his decisive entrance. Now, just let me remind you that in considering this theme of after death, what we have traced a believer's security. You are in Christ sure of immediate 
presence with him at death that lasts forever. Furthermore, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 and saw that 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 is expanded upon as Christ's return to history will bring the resurrection of the body and the ushering in of that final state that we will have with him in glorified form. Bodies, not simply disembodied souls, but forever we will be in these glorified new bodies. But then we took the turn of the corner last time in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, seeing that that return of Christ would not be a day of rejoicing for everybody. That for some, it would bring what the text called sudden destruction. Now let me ask you if you can draw any line of association between several different possible events in human lives. I'm thinking about a high schooler with a final exam in an important subject, let's say geometry. I'm thinking about a county track meet involving many athletes coming for the prize of being best in the county. I'm thinking about any of you going for a job interview. I'm thinking about you if you might come and apply and be interviewed by several elders and a pastor to become a member of our church. What in the world do those occasions have in common? Perhaps you would understand that they are all, in a manner of speaking, an occasion of some kind of judgment. You come and you are being evaluated, whether as a student in high school, a track athlete, a job interviewee, an applicant for church membership, you're being looked at. Does this person meet a basic qualification? Now, let's face it, most of us don't like any kind of occasion of evaluation or judgment. And some people react to it very badly. There are students who I I know are, are excellent students in the general classroom work, and then they come to take final exams or standardized tests like the SAT, and they never quite reach the level of their actual intellectual attainment. Why? Because they don't take tests well. They just don't respond. Nerves or something take hold of them in that occasion. People think, well, I don't like being evaluated. What if I'm going to be found wanting here? What if, what if my secrets are exposed? This is not a comfortable procedure to go through. Well, beyond those considerations of possible embarrassment or exposure, many find the Bible's comprehensive prediction of judgment at the end of time to be at odds with other things in their lives. It, it's certainly at odds with the modern notion of tolerance for every viewpoint. And we draw the line of differentiation between tolerating people and saying, you have the right to have a different opinion. Of course they do. But tolerance does not extend to say all opinions are equally true. And yet people would say, well, how dare you say that God is going to judge and screen people and then say there's one way. And if they don't conform to that one way, they are excluded. That is a hateful idea to modern opinion and to much modern Christianity, in fact, so-called Christianity. Judgment means there must be universal truth and that God's holiness establishes some non-negotiable standards that in the end must be abided by. Today we turn to a very familiar narrative from the ministry of Jesus. 
In Matthew 25, 31 to 46, is sometimes called a parable, perhaps because there are parables right before it. The parable of the talents, the parable of the ten virgins are there in chapter 25. And so many call this the parable of the sheep and goats. I'm pleased uh, to look at my NIV Bible. I just noticed this for the first time right now, that that uh, while it does call those first two sections of 25 a parable, it does not call the next section. It just says the sheep and the goats. And really it isn't proper, I don't think, to call this a parable because there's no note of fiction about it. It's not a fictional illustration or an imaginary illustration. It is a prediction by Christ of things that will happen. Yes, it uses a comparison to something in life that a shepherd does, but nevertheless, it's an actual prediction of an hour in history when every person on earth will give an account to the mighty God. Now, does this idea terrify you? Are you indifferent to it? Or can you, I hope, sense that you are somehow prepared for it and able to face this God today because you know that your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has already endured all the negative things that would await you if you face God without Him. A first point I want to make today is that God's judgment actually covers Him with glory. God's judgment covers Him with glory. This is something people don't think about. I want you to notice the very first verse of verse 31. As the Son will appear to sit on His throne, it says He will be in heavenly glory. As a judge, He will be in splendor. Now, this is not the way most people think about it. In fact, if they think about God's judgment at all, they want to say, well, you know, God doesn't seem very perfect or very splendid when he's pictured as a judge. But I would have you understand just the opposite, that God is a judge because of his perfections, and his perfections are best on display when at last... He is vindicated against all evil and all sin. You see, there are people who hear about God having wrath for sin, and they always wrestle. Every time they see that term, it it makes a knee jerk. Oh, yes, wrath, I don't like that. God's a God of love. Yes, indeed, He is a God of love, and He's a God of mercy and, and grace and justice. But the Bible speaks about His wrath. And the problem is many people think, well, If you're going to talk about a God of wrath, you seem to be talking about the God I know and like, the normally calm, polite, grandfatherly God, kind of gone berserk all of a sudden, as if he was the mild-mannered Dr. Jekyll that Robert Louis Stevenson created, turned into the monstrous Mr. Hyde. And and so the God of wrath is is an aberration. He's God sort of gone off his base and off his foundation. But you see, the God of Scripture is no chameleon, and judgment is at the very core of his whole nature and of his holy perfections. Maybe you'd get at the the core of it or begin to to bring it down to your understanding if you would think of a, a fairly obscure but important statement in the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk 
1.13 says, The eyes of the Lord are too pure to look upon evil. God's perfection, His holiness, His otherness is so great that evil of every kind, even a smallest sin to Him, is an infinite offense. You have to understand that to understand what we're talking about here. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham expressed confidence in God, and he was saying that God would correctly, he was sure that God would be able to correctly discern between evil and righteousness. His statement was, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham said, can God fail to be just? Can you actually tell me that the God who is perfect, omniscient, almighty, that this God could ever judge something wrong? That he could ever not understand something or, or somehow come to a decision that would not be a perfect decision? And so logically, since the depraved evil that fills our world caused by human beings has not had a final accounting, final judgment, final disposition of good versus evil is simply not a matter of God throwing a temper tantrum, as some people would want to say it. Oh, I can't have a God of wrath. That God doesn't fit. Well, then you don't have the Bible's God. Because the Bible's God is one who is totally averse to evil. And he must react in the strongest possible way against evil and sin. And so when he judges... He's doing what is at the heart of his whole aim in history, and that is to expunge evil in the end from his universe and to see righteousness triumphant. Acts 17.31 says that Christ will be the vessel through whom God will, quote, judge the world in righteousness. Judge the world perfectly according to standards that are absolutely of the highest standard. You know, we have people who work in the law, people who are judges in court, and those people would tell us, they would understand that as great as the law is and as important as the law is to human society, the law always achieves an end that is imperfect. In the end, every jury has some kind of bias in it, and, and every trial has, has not brought every single fact or everything that might have been known to light from the most objective black and white viewpoint that can perfectly lay down everything so that a perfect judgment can be issued. I think any honest judge would tell us that that the law approximates a perfect judgment. It works for that, but it's dealing with human beings. So even its best efforts are fallible, no matter how carefully the law is applied. But we're talking about the true God. The God who is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is 100% intolerant of sin and dedicated to justice. How can you ever say that God's judgment would be anything less than perfect as He is perfect? I think people are very puzzled when they read Hebrews 10.31 sometimes. Hebrews 10.31, I won't give you the whole context in which it is seated, but it is a verse that says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People say, 
Whoa. Dreadful? God dreadful? Well, the author of Hebrews is talking about God in his infinite holiness and man in his complete sinfulness and saying, you, O man, O woman, if you were to face this infinitely holy God, uncovered, unprotected, just as you are, it would be a dreadful thing. You would find him to be, as the Scripture elsewhere says, a consuming fire. You know, people often mention to me hymns they they wish we would sing, and they'll say, oh, you haven't sung this hymn in five years. Well, I could pull out the hymnal and show them we did sing it last year, but maybe they weren't there because I date every hymn every time we sing it. But I have never chosen, nor have you ever requested, hymn number 711, and I don't think you ever will. You won't get past the title of it. Hymn number 711 in our book is, God the All-Terrible. Whoa, I saw a couple heads snap back. God, terrible? Well, why don't we sing that? We don't sing it because I think most of you couldn't get past understanding what, what it was really about. And yet the words of it probably wouldn't offend you because it's a hymn that simply declares the grandeur and the power of God. It's an expansion on this theme that it is a fearful thing, a dreadful thing to fall unprotected into the hands of the living God. He is holy, holy, holy. And human beings, in their sin, can't face that. And so biblical words like wrath, fury, vindication, indignation, all these are words that describe God in reaction to sin. And people don't like any of that. They say, oh, oh that's an Old Testament God. Come on, we've gotten past that. We're, we're advanced. We don't need that stuff. And that's a God who sounds like he's breaking loose from his moorings and reacting in anger. No. It's a God whose wrath is a completely appropriate response, indeed a necessary response of a holy one to sin. A God who shows long-suffering and patience and mercy and waits for centuries to let his wrath fall. But nevertheless... That wrath is at the core of his being when you talk about sin. Sin is intrinsically a moral violation of God's very essence. He must judge it, or he denies what he is. So stop having a domesticated God. Every time your tongue starts to say, well, my idea, your your mouth should shut. And don't say, my idea of God is, look at the biblical God. Is your idea of God the biblical God? And instead of saying, oh, sin is not so bad, for goodness sake, God can forgive it, he can look the other way, how could God ever judge sin in a human life by eternal hell? Instead of saying that, what you ought to say is how black, how awful, how loathsome is my sin if perfect justice and holiness would consign the unrepentant person to eternal hell for the same things that I do every single day. God is glorified as a judge. The praise of his justice and mercy and grace will redound to him when sin is finally done away with. He's covered with splendid glory when he judges. For then his righteousness shines out 
as no other time. Christ the judge at the final hour of history is God in his essential glory. Judgment covers him with glory. Secondly, and from our text, directly again, Matthew 25 tells us or shows us that everyone in the world will face Christ as a final judge. Verse 12 says, all nations, all nations. Your nationality isn't going to exclude you. Your religious preference isn't going to exclude you. All peoples will be there. And everyone will face Christ as judge. Now, not only did he predict he'd be the judge, I reminded you last week of some places like John 5 and others that says the Father has delegated judgment into the hands of the Son. I won't go over all that again. Here is the Son in his supreme triumph. Christ the Son was triumphant in his resurrection and his ascension. He's triumphant in a real sense now as he rules over heaven and earth, but he will be seen in triumph in his final judgment. Now, you know, there's, there's something we haven't said much about yet, and actually 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 didn't explicitly mention it, but took it for granted as if you knew it. And that is that there will be a general resurrection of all the dead when Christ returns. It's a little strange. I admit that that Thessalonians doesn't mention this, but other scriptures do. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 predicted it, that multitudes who sleep in the dust of death will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 only talked about believers alive and formerly dead who would arise and, and be resurrected, but the scripture says everybody's going to be, not for glory, Revelation 20:12 pictures it too, a great white throne it says where the dead, both great and small, will stand before the throne and the books will be opened. There's another text, 2 Corinthians 5:10 that tells us we must and that's believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is done for things in this body, done in this body whether good or bad. Now, that means believers are going to face this throne. You know, you don't somehow skip from Christ appearing to heavenly glory without facing the judge. You will face the judge. 1 Peter 4.17 says judgment begins at the household of God. Uh Uh-oh. Should we fear this? Wonderfully not. For we who are in Christ Jesus by faith know that we are already his precious possession. He has already died for us. We have professed him and owned him. He has justified us. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He is working within us that eternal work that he's going to bring to completion in the day of Christ. We are the apples of his eye. But there is a sense in which we face judgment. And there's a purpose to that judgment, not to condemn us, but to reveal us for what we are. For judgment is a kind of revelation, taking all the secrets and putting them out in the open. Romans 2.16 says that, that God will judge all the secrets of human hearts. Other scripture, I don't have time to go into all these, say that, that even our idle words and our thoughts are going to be there for review. And wow, Christians start to get really threatened about that. God knows what I'm thinking. But you have to keep in mind the great fact that we are Christ's possession. 
And the purpose of judgment for us is to reveal that we are His and to vindicate that and to bring us into glory. And so even if, and not if, but when, because I believe it's a certainty that God will reveal every idle thought I've ever had, all my covetousness, all my falsehood, all my deceit, all my lust, everything else that's ever passed through me, all my angry words and cutting remarks, it's all going to be sort of piled up there somehow. I don't understand exactly how. And I will see it all at once, and probably somehow others are going to see it like a huge, unbelievable Lancaster County manure pile. And it's going to be awful. And yet, looking at that pile, the the judge is not going to say, Rogers, there's plenty here to condemn you. He's going to say, in spite of all that, you're mine. Look what I did in redeeming you. Look what I had to forgive to redeem you. And I believe he's going to say to me what verse 34 of our text has the judge saying, Come, you blessed of my Father, take up your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. And I'll walk away from that manure pile and never see it again. Praise God. Thank God for how his grace will be displayed in his judgment of believers. But that's not the whole story, of course. Because for unbelief, something terrible occurs. That same manure pile stands in front of each person. Not a a pretty image. I don't intend it to be pretty. And for that person, there's no covering. There's no atonement. There's no transaction of justification. And so 1 Thessalonians 5.3 has already said what would happen. Sudden destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1 said it would mean separation from God forever. And so we hear consistently Jesus predict here. Apart from what Paul wrote, here's Jesus' prediction. 2541 of our text, he will say to these, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his. I can't even read that sentence. That these people are going to go to the same end prepared for Satan himself. So, oh, how terrible. How could God? No, don't ask me how could God do that. How could these people ignore the wonders put before so many of them of the good grace of God in the atonement of Jesus and go on and say, oh, I don't think it'll ever happen. It doesn't apply to me. And they'll come to this great fork in the road where people are no longer making decisions for themselves. They have had a lifetime in which they daily decided either quietly or passively or even very actively in their will to rebel against the Lord and spurn His truth. And now they're not making the decisions anymore. The decision is sealed for them. Go out into eternity without God. In mid-April 1912... Several different ships brought survivors of the RMS Titanic disaster into New York Harbor. And the officials of the White Star shipping line had a task as they went about every person who was on those ships and took down names. And they finally put their list together, their tally together, and found they had 706 passengers' names who had been on the Titanic 
And now we're standing on the wharf of New York Harbor alive. And they compared that list to the ship's original passenger manifest from Britain, which started out being 2,223 people and did a little simple math and realized that 1,507 souls had perished in 28-degree waters of the North Atlantic in which it was estimated a person would not survive for more than 15 minutes' exposure. There were only two types of people on board the Titanic. People who were saved and people who were lost. And that is as it is in the world today. There are only two types of people in the world. The world doesn't want to hear this message, but it's the message of Scripture. You must reject this book, not one or two pages. You must reject the book if you're going to tell me there's some third category of persons other than people who are saved and people who are lost in that final day. But then this quickly as we finish this text for today. Matthew 25 agrees with other scriptures in saying something that maybe you didn't quite expect. It says that judgment is based on salvation by grace as displayed in visible works. Judgment is based on salvation by grace as displayed in visible works. Maybe you didn't expect that. You said, wait, you just have to be belong to Christ, take Jesus as my Savior, and I'm eternally right with him. What's this works thing? Are you telling me that there's something added to the gospel? Well, listen to what Jesus said here. As he separated sheep from goats, saved from lost, how did he do it? What did he say was the basis of the screening? Clearly, it was works that men do towards the least of these, my brother. I side with those interpreters who think that Jesus, when he said, the least of these, my brothers, my brethren. Who are the brethren of Christ? Save people. His elect from all eternity. So he's saying, you who have shown this mercy, this charity, these acts of kindness and support and sacrifice towards the least of people in my kingdom show what you are. Matthew 25 is not stating that salvation is based on social outreach programs for the poor. The social gospel folks kind of like this passage. They say, look, look, all you have to do is be kind to the poor and you'll be saved. No, there's something more to it than that. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's based on grace through faith, but it will always (coughs) show itself, excuse me, (coughs) will always show itself in unique works of loving service to the kingdom of God and the people of God. In other words, Jesus was predicting here that he would infallibly identify his saved by grace people because that grace leaves evidence in their lives of works of mercy toward the kingdom. James You know, chapter 2, James says it a number of times, that faith without works is is dead. You show me your faith, James said, I want to see your works. I want to see that there's something that backs it up. And Christ is really saying that same thing here, that he doesn't value just an empty profession of faith. He expects fruit to grow. And and that fruit should be so inevitable that if, if he sees the fruit, then he knows that the profession is real. 
Scripture gives us at least a threefold test of how to know you belong to Christ. One, you believe He is God come in flesh, and you openly profess that before the world. Two, you obey His commandments as best you are able to. Three, you love His people, and you lay down your life for His people and for His church. You see, it's only faith in Christ that justifies, and yet that faith never remains unaccompanied by works that show the character of Jesus living in us and acting through us. While the unbeliever lives, oh, sure, he gives to the United Way. Yes, there are unbelievers who do some wonderfully charitable things, but the question is, what's their motivation? Where is that coming from? You can really trace it and see that it's coming from wanting to look good, wanting to do my part, maybe wanting to impress God even. When none of those are the motive Jesus is talking about here. The unbeliever is primarily self-centered and does not lay himself down in sacrifice for the people of God and the kingdom of God. Now, in summary, I've tried to have you see today that we must never assume that divine judgment on human sin is just a fringe topic in Christianity. It's not a nasty tag-on that we can conveniently avoid because it's unpleasant to talk about. It is absolutely at the core of everything, and here's why I say that. What else was the cross of Jesus if it was not an exhibition of the justice and judgment of God upon sin put upon the head of His Son as our perfect substitute? Isaiah 53 said, The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says in that wonderful summary, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That was an act of judgment. Don't you see that? If you want to understand the cross, if you want to understand the awesome thing that was happening when Jesus hung there and suffered there and cried out, not just because his body was hurting every way a human body could possibly hurt. Why did he say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he say that because the nails hurt? Or he was exhausted or he was thirsty or, or he, his whole body was numb with pain? None of those things made him say that. He, he was in hell. He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing the judgment of God upon human sin, taking it as the scapegoat, the Lamb of God. If you take away the imperative of divine judgment, the cross simply makes no sense. Let me say this to you folks. We'll say more of this in coming weeks, but glimpsing the terrible thing that it is to fall into the hands of God without the covering of Christ's atonement on the cross ought to bring to your mind and your heart a great urgency and a great burden for the whole task of Christian evangelism and missions. We must pray for and witness to and sacrifice for the least of Christ's brethren including those who haven't even found him yet. Can we be indifferent to the plight of people who will face this terrible judgment from God even though they're ignorant of it now? What a call to evangelism there is here. You see, at Calvary, God's final accounting of his wrath and his justice take place in advance 
were believers. The Christ you will face in eternity is the one who died in your place voluntarily and took your judgment. The question always is, the gospel question is, will you accept judgment already visited on Christ? Why wouldn't you take that? Why wouldn't you run to that, grab that, hold on to that with all your might instead of insisting, oh, no, God, I'll just take my own punishment. Thank you very much. Well, that's what some people are doing. And it's completely extraordinary that they would do so. My final word to you is something we read earlier in our service in Psalm 2. The Lord's own appeal to you. I can't say it better. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. For blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Our Father, again in a grim text, a hard text, we can see the wonders of what you were doing. We can see your grace. We can see your mercy designing that you would save anyone from judgment deserved. Oh, God, I pray today for people here who are casual towards this, who think, oh, that's just, that's just a preacher's rhetoric. Break them open before your word. Let them see that they need not die. They need not be separated, but they can rejoice in your presence by trusting Christ. May that be to your glory even this day for some. In Jesus' name, amen.